Welcome to Your Cathedral Podcast, a podcast from the Cathedral Church of St. Luke and St. Paul in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information on our church, please visit yourcathedral.org. Father, we need your help this morning. Where we are blind, would you illuminate us? Where we are weak, would you give us your strength? Where we are dead, would you bring us new life? And we ask as we open up your word, would you show us Jesus by the power of your spirit, crucified, risen, and one day to return. As we see Jesus, may we be transformed to become like him. For we ask it in his strong name. Amen. 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 Please be seated. Well, good morning to each of you. Nice to see you all. If I've not met you yet, my name is Patrick Schlabs. And I'm one of the pastors here at the cathedral, and I hope to get a chance to meet you at one of the side doors following the service. I would love to connect with you, hear your story. Just a personal update about me. In the past few months, I have been obsessed with a podcast about wild animal attacks. (laughs) And if you're not familiar with podcasts or that whole world, I'll just tell you that a podcast is essentially when a couple of uh, bros have too much time in a microphone. And that's very much the case of this one. But somehow, it is surprisingly entertaining and informative. This particular one that I've been listening to is two brothers and their college friend. And one of them happens to be a wildlife biologist. And in this podcast, they just tell stories of animal attacks. From bears to sharks to spiders to kangaroos to ants to pangolins, everything in between. Almost the entire animal kingdom has attacked a human at some point. And they will tell you about it. And you may be asking, why on earth would you want to have a podcast like this? Well, I'll tell you. It's in order, they say this just about every episode, in order that you might be prepared. They want you to know when you should run or when you should fight or when you should play dead, when you should climb a tree, the whole thing. They want you to be prepared to survive an unexpected encounter with an animal. And I'll say that I am not certain what the uh, fascination with this is for me. I'm not sure why it's captured my imagination, but I'll tell you, if I run into a mother grizzly bear in Hampton Park, I know what to do. I'm going to be safe. I'm ready. In this morning's gospel lesson, Jesus is preparing his disciples to encounter sudden loss and chaos and persecution. You might uh, think of our text that we just heard read as something like a, a last day's survival guide. And I'm not just talking about left behind. It's a very different kind of last day's survival guide than that unfortunate series from the 1990s. So I do want to invite you to turn your in your Bibles or open up your pew Bibles if you don't have one there with you to page 880, Luke chapter 21. I think it can be helpful for you sometimes to see uh, the, the sections as I kind of go through them, track the argument, track, track Jesus' words. But before we jump into that, I just want to remind you that if you're new to Anglicanism, we are almost to the end of our church calendar. Two Sundays from today, the Sunday after Thanksgiving will be the, the Christian New Year, the first Sunday in Advent. And so we are coming to the end of Luke's gospel. We're coming to the climax of Luke's narrative. And you'll notice if you've been with us for the past few years, or if not, if you're new to the Anglican tradition, uh, before Advent comes, we get these passages that focus on 
judgment, on destruction, on death, on the end times. Just the kind of thing that you need to get in the mood for the holidays, right? (laughs) And in today's passage, Jesus is coming into Jerusalem for what will be his last time. The chapter before, he is confronting or is confronted by the religious leaders with questions of his authority. They're arguing together. They're discussing together what is the nature of Jesus' ministry and under which authority, whose authority, is he functioning in that ministry. And we're told at the end of this chapter that he would go to the temple every day and he would teach. And then he would retreat at night just across the valley to the Mount of Olives. Which is why this passage is often called the Olivet Discourse. And we find it in each of the Synoptic Gospels. Matthew has it, Mark has it, and then Luke has it here. All slightly different versions of this discourse. And Jesus here is addressing, as I said, the last days. The end times. What theologians call eschatology, which is just the study of last things. And there are some things in this passage that are more specific and immediate about the destruction of the temple and the destruction of Jerusalem. But then there are some things that are more broad and they're related to something far off or what we know now to be far off, the last days, what the Old Testament calls the day of the Lord, the final judgment. And in each of these situations, both the immediate and the far off, Jesus is preparing his disciples to endure, to endure what will come. Let's jump in. Verse 5. We find that some people are speaking and marveling at the temple. They're amazed at its size and its beauty. They look at the stones and they look at the beautiful offerings that are there. And then Jesus says, days will come when there will not be one stone left on another. That will not be thrown down. We know this happened centuries before with Solomon's temple that was destroyed by the Babylonians. But this temple is even greater than Solomon's temple. It was one of many building projects by Herod the Great. He began this about 20 BC. And we know from historians like Josephus that this temple was enormous. Some of the stones Josephus tells us were over 60 feet long. Massive. It was widely regarded as one of the greatest structures in all of antiquity. But more than its beauty or its size, this was the center the people of Israel. This was the dwelling place of the God of heaven, their God. More than that, it was the center of social life, the center of religious life, where the sacrifices took place, the center of political life. That's why Jesus was there in the center of it all, teaching, discussing with the religious leaders. This is the very center of the Jewish mind and universe. And Jesus says that very soon this symbol this building will be given over to complete destruction. It's tough for us to even fathom, I think, the, 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 the significance of this. We don't really have a, a space that's like that. It would be something like if, if somehow the Statue of Liberty was also the same as maybe uh, St. Patrick's Cathedral in New York or the National Cathedral in Washington, and then maybe Grand Central Station or something like that. They were all taken, they were all said to be destroyed very soon. And so in panic, these disciples say, teacher, when is this going to happen? How will we know? What signs will there be so we can know and be ready? 
Jesus begins in verse eight. He says, see that you are not led astray. For many will come, he says, in my name, and they will say, I am he. With the implication being, I am the Messiah. Or the time is at hand. Jesus says, do not go after them. Do not follow them. Do not be deceived by them. Jesus is preparing his disciples, his followers, to face great loss. The loss of this institution. The loss of this dwelling place of God's presence that will soon not be needed in the same way. And he's warning them and saying that when you are faced with this loss, the temptation is going to be to look for salvation elsewhere. To look for a Messiah. To look for a strong man. To look for, look for someone like Judas Maccabeus who rose up and overthrew the Greek overlords. Someone like David, someone like Moses, a great leader to rise up. And he says that when these things happen, you are going to see people follow after other messiahs to be led astray. I've just returned from being in Israel for a couple of weeks, and so you're going to be very sick of hearing about what I saw in Israel but one of the things that I saw is a place called Masada, and you probably know what that is, but if not, it was the last stronghold of Jewish zealots who fled the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. They climbed up a mountain, they waited there, and then they were eventually assaulted by the Romans and destroyed. It's a memorial to the futility of these false messiahs that Jesus warns against there. It's a very special, sad place. And so Jesus is preparing his people then and us now to experience and encounter great loss. And he says, when you are threatened with great loss, don't go after false saviors. Don't go after other messiahs, other strongmen who will come and rescue you. He continues in verse 9. He says, you will hear of wars and tumults. And you will think when you see those things happening that this is the end. But he says, this is not yet the end. Nation will rise against nation. You probably heard this said before. Kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes and famines and plagues and terrors and signs in the heavens. Jesus is preparing his people to experience what we might say today, geopolitical upheaval. The overturning of authorities. That's what the word tumult means. The disintegration of institutions that we have hoped in. Natural disasters, man-made disasters. He says some are going to think when they see these things happening that this is the end, but it is not yet the end. Of course, we know that people do this in every generation, right? We look at our world. We look at the chaos. We look at the upheaval and say this must be as bad as it ever has been. This must be the end. But Jesus is saying to them that your chaos in your generation is not special. It's not Yet the end. And Jesus' warning to his people in the midst of this chaos is don't be terrified. Don't be fearful. I grew up in the 80s. And the 80s were a scary time for those of you that lived through them. And if I were to list the things that I was told were very scary in the 80s right now, you would laugh. Because what was so terrifying at one point, like, you know, uh, hair metal or Marilyn Manson or whatever the kind of boogeyman was is just kind of a joke now. And in a lot of ways, every generation 
faces their own set of fearful situations, fearful things. And when we look back at them in 10 years or 50 years or 100 years, we might just laugh. Clearly, that's not true of everything, but a lot of the things that we get so uh, hot and bothered by, caught up in, afraid of, end up being not as scary as we thought. And so that's why Jesus' word to us is meaningful. Do not be terrified. Do not be fearful. You probably heard it said that one of the most uh, repeated commandments in all of Scripture is fear not. It's all throughout the Old Testament. Fear not. Jesus says it in the New Testament. I am with you. Fear not. Marilyn Robinson, this uh, wonderful essayist and uh, author, has this quote that I think of often. And she says this. She says, fear is not a Christian habit of mind. Fear is not a Christian habit of mind. Clearly, that doesn't mean that Christians don't have fearful thoughts, that there aren't things that do bother us or scare us or create anxiety or whatever, but it's not Christian to dwell on fears. It cuts against the grain of everything that we say we believe. And Jesus here is preparing us for those moments of upheaval and chaos that we will see and that we will encounter and that his people for every generation since then have encountered. And he says, do not be terrified. Do not be fearful. Fear is not a Christian habit of mine. The final thing that Jesus wants to prepare us for in this text this morning is maybe more uh, chilling, most chilling, because it cuts close to home. And that is a persecution. Verse 12, he says, before all these things happen, before the end comes, they will lay their hands upon you. They will persecute you. You will be brought into the synagogues and into prisons and go before kings and governors for my name's sake. He goes on to say that you will even be delivered up by family members, by relatives, by friends, and some of you will be put to death. He says, you will be hated by all for my name's sake. Persecution should not be a surprise because Jesus has prepared us for it. He says it points in the gospel like in John 15, he says, they hated me, they will hate you. Why would followers be expected to be treated any differently than their leader? And the very things that Jesus predicts here, we find in Luke's other book, the book of Acts, played out. Stephen, who is stoned in Acts chapter 6. Peter, who is in prison multiple times through the book. Paul and Silas, who are beaten and put in prison. Paul is later brought before kings. And I assume that at some point in your lifetime, in our lifetime, we will encounter some level of persecution. You know this, but the world has changed, right? Things, things have shifted. Things are different than they were 50 years ago or 25 years ago. And you may find that Christianity at one point was just maybe ignored. Your faith was maybe uh, especially scrutinized. But now you might feel excluded. You might feel maligned. You might feel mocked even at times. And there may be instances where worse happens, where you are overlooked for a job. Where you are denied some privilege that you were previously afforded in another time. And again, it may be worse. There are Christians all around the world, in particular the Middle East, who have much more under threat than just their reputation, much more than just being mocked. Their lives are threatened. 
And yet, seriously, Jesus tells us that persecution is not a surprise for Christians. You might say it's a feature, not a bug. And the early church needed to hear this, right? You've heard the quote probably, Tertullian, one of the church fathers, said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. One of the reasons that the church exploded in the first through the fourth century is because of persecution. Because they bore witness to a different kind of kingdom. Because they bore witness to the fact that Rome did not have power over them. They could be crucified. They could be fed to lions. They could be mocked. They could be humiliated. But they did not flinch. Because they were prepared. They were warned. And they were ready in that moment to bear witness. And I do need to say here, I feel, that there is a difference between persecution for our faith and simply being confronted. There are times when I believe the world confronts us with our own framework, with our own scripture, with our own ethics, our own theology, and they expose our failures and bring them, I say. They expose the, fail, the failings that we've had to care for the poor, for the times we failed to uphold human dignity, for the times that our leaders have not been or not shown integrity, for the ways that we have failed to love our enemies or the ways that we failed to respond to things like child abuse in our churches. The world is right to point out those things. They're right to expose us, and that is not persecution. First Peter says that judgment begins with the house of God. And I say, let it come. Let it continue to come. We should be humble whenever we are confronted with those things. And yet, true persecution and humility in the midst of confrontation are opportunities, Jesus says in verse 13, to bear witness. The underlying word there for witness is the word we get martyr from. It's an opportunity to bear witness. When you encounter loss, when you encounter chaos in the world, when you encounter the threat of persecution or even death, that is the moment when the church is called to bear witness, to suffer. That's our moment. And so I just don't have much room for people in fear of Christianity being marginalized. I really don't. This is our thing. If we are to follow the way of Jesus, we are to follow the way of the cross. And Jesus tells them, you know, when you think about persecution, don't prepare beforehand what you're to say. And the underlying idea there is to, to not meditate it. Don't fixate on the threat of persecution and what your kind of bullet point argument might be. Don't prepare a formal speech. Jesus says he will be present with you to give you the words to say in that moment. He will give you strength to bear witness whatever comes. And Jesus has given us these words here and clearly, as I said, they are essential for these first hearers. These were probably the words they clung to as they suffered. But they are still true for us today as every generation experiences these things of loss and chaos and persecution. And in each one, there is that same temptation, the temptations to uh, be deceived, to go after other messiahs, to cower in fear, to fixate on what we will say and how we respond. And yet Jesus says that these are the times when we are called to bear witness. 
And so my question for us this morning is how do we become those kinds of people? How do we become the kind of people that respond, that our instincts are to respond as Jesus calls us to respond, to bear witness? I believe that this text shows us that the only way that we can be prepared to bear witness in the face of anything that comes is by knowing that a hair of our head, in verse 18, not one hair of your head will ever, never, ever perish. Not one hair of your head will perish, Jesus says. So when loss comes, when chaos comes, when persecution comes, when even death comes, not one hair will ultimately be lost. The word they're lost is the same one that Luke uses for the lost coin or the lost sheep that he leaves the 99 for or the lost son who comes home from the far country. None of you will be lost. And we will be a people who are prepared to face anything if we know that Jesus is with us. If we know that Jesus will keep us forever. If we know that nothing, as we heard read, can separate us from the love that is ours in Christ Jesus. Not loss or not chaos, not persecution, not sin, and not even death. Because Jesus faced all of those things. And he shows us his love in that way. What the Jesus Storybook Bible calls the never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love of Jesus. And that is what holds us, friend. That's what maintains us in any situation. The Heidelberg Catechism is one of these great uh, contributions to learning the Christian faith. You've probably heard this before, but the first question, it's in your bulletins if you want to read along. First question is, what is your only comfort in life and in death? The answer, that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. That is how we are people who are prepared to face anything. By knowing that we are not our own, but we belong body, soul, life, and death to our faithful Savior, Jesus. And as we know that and believe that, we will be prepared to endure and to bear witness in anything. And so I will say, if you're not a Christian and here visiting with us, really glad that you're here. Thanks for being here. If you have questions, myself or one of us would love to, to talk to you about the Christian faith. But I would say, if you are feeling a sense of loss or a sense of chaos, I trust that you're here for a reason, exploring Christianity. I would say that Jesus is a haven. And the things that he has said are true. He's shown his love for us through his cross, through his resurrection. And just hang in there, just... Consider if you might find a haven in Jesus too. If you are a Christian and you're feeling overwhelmed by loss and chaos, I would say ask yourself what you're meditating on. I say this a lot. This is a theme because I see it in my own life. Steep yourself. If you find yourself caught up in anxiety over the state of the world, steep yourself in what we just read from Romans 8 the security that is yours in Jesus. Steep yourself in what we just heard read from the Heidelberg Catechism, that you're not your own, but you belong to Jesus. It's the, the words of uh, the hymn in Christ alone that we sing here very often. No power in hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck you from his hand. That's the security that is yours. Steep yourself in those truths. And then finally, I just want to remind you that we kind of have a picture, especially as Americans, of the, the, the one person, the, the one uh, 
consistent disciple, right, who, who holds strong in the midst of anything. But each of these verbs is plural, and they're all written to groups of people. And so you need each other. You need one another. That's why we've pushed our community groups so much, because those are the people who will walk with you in the midst of whatever you're going through. Friends, it is no surprise that we walk through these things that we walk through in life. We trust that Jesus is with us in them, and he will ultimately keep us until the day of Christ Jesus. Amen? Amen.